Welcome to Unexpected Points. This is your host, Kevin Cole. This week, we're going to do something a little bit different than what we've done in the past. Now, I am going to have a guest this week. I'm going to have the great Shio Kapadia from The Athletic, expert in everything that's going on with the Eagles. He used to cover them before. He's now a national writer there. So I'm going to get into all the Eagles stuff, all the Carson Wentz stuff, what's going to happen with Roseman, with uh, Peterson, how the ownership views things there. So I'm going to get into all that. I'm also going to talk a little bit about the Seahawks because he used to cover the Seahawks before when he was with ESPN uh, there too. So there'll be a a two-part with with Shio Kapadia there. But what I want to talk about is some stuff just in a solo format here for 10, 15 minutes, hopefully 10, 15 minutes at the beginning of the pod. There's a couple things that are on my radar, uh, things that that we can focus in on and see you know, maybe it's against the perception of the league, but it's not necessarily something that fits into the expertise of the guests for this for this week. So the first thing I want to get into, and this is going to be in contrast to a recent proclamation that some people may have seen from George Chahuri, PFF George. He enraged Steelers Twitter, who was already uh, already a lot of people there enraged about the fact that there have been these multiple delays and coronavirus and bye weeks getting moved, everything else. So he threw gasoline onto that fire by saying that the Pittsburgh Steelers were the most overrated team in the NFL. And he did this a couple of weeks ago. And I think as strange as it sounds in the NFL, that that could be true then. So they were seen as maybe the top team in the NFL because they hadn't lost. They were seen as a team that's probably a little bit better than they actually were offensively. And they were relied upon as if that defense was going to continue to play at a high level, at that high level the entire season. So there, there were some issues there. But what I want to do is I want to flip back and I want to say at this point in time, amazingly, even though I'm not saying George was wrong then, I'm saying right now the Pittsburgh Steelers have flipped from overrated to underrated. And let me tell you why. I mean, first, let's just go by the numbers. Even by our own power rankings that we that we use our grading for, our ELO-based power rankings, the Steelers right now are third in the NFL. Now, that doesn't sound like people are, are thinking that they're worse than that, but the real number that I'm going to focus on here as a, as a rating for how we're currently viewing this team is the fact that they're playing the Buffalo Bills this week. They are a two-and-a-half-point underdog to the Bills. Now, it's in Buffalo, don't get me wrong, but home field advantage doesn't matter as much as what people think. This year, teams are about 500, whether they're the home team or road team. It was about the same last year. There isn't that much of an effect. So this line is telling you that people think that the Buffalo Bills are better than the the Pittsburgh Steelers, and I'm going to tell you why that is underrating the Pittsburgh Steelers right now. Like I said, they're third according to our power rankings. The Bills are seventh, which is 2.7-point difference on a neutral field. So that's way different. We'd be looking at worst. It would be a pick in this game based upon that. Uh, our friends at Massey Peabody, Rufus Peabody, friend of the podcast who's been on here, they have the Steelers' as second best team in the NFL to the Kansas City Chiefs. They have the Bills as 10th, a four-point difference on a neutral field. And I think what's driving this, obviously, are the poor results that we've seen for the Steelers recently. So let me discuss why those results are, are a bit misleading. First, let's start on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, the Steelers have struggled, and Ben Roethlisberger has looked like the version that people thought could not win a Super Bowl this year. That is someone who's throwing a lot underneath, someone who's not stretching the field. But if we we take a step back, we look back a bit. Yes, he has the 15th best um, passing grade in the NFL right now. So not great, right? Not great there. But if we look at EPA per play, what he's done there, he's more like 11th. He's ahead of a lot of names and guys that we think 
are pretty solid quarterbacks uh, this season or guys who we like, like Justin Herbert, like Kyler Murray, uh, like Jared Goff, whatever you say about him, people are pretty high on that Rams team right now. So he's been better than all those guys. He's been better than Russell Wilson when it comes to EPA per play. So what happened these last few weeks? Well, number one, they're coming off of three games in 15 days. That That's challenging, but they'll have just as much rest here as, as the Bills are going to have going into this late Sunday night game. And these are really just the high leverage situations that they haven't been able to convert on on the offensive side of the ball. They were 0 for 4 on fourth downs the last two weeks. Those are the two games we watched them really struggle. So 0 for 4 there. And these are not long fourth downs that they had to convert. We're talking about fourth downs that were one yard, one yard, two yards, and one yard. So these are ones that should be converted at an over 50% clip for each one of those. They didn't convert any of, of the four that they had. And that's obviously four drive killers right there. Now we go to third down. They're 12 for 30 on third down. A lot of these were some shorter third downs also that they weren't able to convert. So this is something where they converted about two to three fewer third downs than you would have expected um, over the last two weeks, despite the fact that they were converting over expectation before. And Ben Roethlisberger is someone, like I said, he's not stretching the ball down the field, but he has been someone in his career who has converted third downs at a higher than expected rate. So I expect that to reverse um, and to see some positive regression there going back towards the Steelers. Now, the defensive side of the ball, I think there are legitimate concerns about injuries. You know, Devin Bush has been out for a while. His backup, Robert Spillane, is now out. Uh, Bud Dupree is out. The starting corners, Steven Nelson and Joe Hayden, likely out after missing some time there. Now, I'm not going to go defense doesn't matter because it does matter a lot for the Steelers. They generate a lot of pressure. That's a very sticky defensive statistic. So I think they still have TJ Watt there and they still have the other guys on that offensive line, especially interior pressure, who can bring it. And I think the defensive losses, people may be pinning a little bit too much on them because they're happening in game. If you think about it, it's very difficult for a player to step in during the middle of the game when they haven't had time to prepare and to move into that role, as opposed to a new player coming in, like how Spillane came in from Devin Bush and the defense actually got better. A new player coming in and practicing all week in that starting role. And that's what they're going to have moving forward. The defense should come back to, to closer to what we've seen before. The offense is a lot better than what we've seen these last few weeks. They still have all the different weapons on offense. Um, they still have... Ben Roethlisberger, who's playing pretty well, and the drops and being able to convert, unable to convert on fourth and third down are not necessarily going to be the stickiest things going forward. Now, the other thing I want to talk about is the second point before we're going to get into it with Shil Kapadia is Taysom Hill. Now, I've been right about some things recently, one of them being Kyler Murray was going to have some problems and that Arizona Cardinals offense was going to have some problems when he wasn't running the ball. Uh, I was fairly right about the fact that uh, Russell Wilson was going to come back down to earth, that he may have been a bit overrated earlier this season from what we saw. One thing that I think I've been right about, but I haven't been correct about, and I'll tell you the differentiation there, is Taysom Hill. I thought Taysom Hill needed to run the ball, and needed to run the ball a lot for them to win. And I, I'll i say that I've been right there, because when you look at the internals of what he has done, he has not passed the ball effectively they have not run the ball a lot, but they've had some pretty easy competition and getting no pressure on him playing the Falcons two out of those three games. And then he suffered a lot against the Broncos, an actual real defense on the road. But it didn't matter because the Broncos had no quarterback on the other side. So there was nothing to do there. But I haven't been correct because he has thrown the ball down the field. They have converted third downs. 
they have won those games. The question is, can this, can this continue going forward? And I think we're going to get a test of it this week. Now, it's not going to be the strongest offense for the Philadelphia Eagles when they have Jalen Hurts, his first NFL start. They have a defense, again, that's been covering up a lot for Taysom Hill. The defense has been the best defense in the NFL the last few weeks. If you look at the performances they had against the Falcons, so we're talking about against Matt Ryan in that offense, that offense performed at a bottom 10 percentile in both of those two, two games. The defense was that good. Now, at one point, before the fourth quarter touchdown against the Falcons, there was a graphic on the screen in that Saints game, and it told you that the defense had not allowed a touchdown in 42 straight possessions. 42 straight possessions without a touchdown. Think about it. There are anywhere from 9 to, let's say, 13 possessions per game. They've gone 42 straight without giving up a touchdown. That is the environment in which Taysom Hill has had to win. There has not been a single down that Taysom Hill has played over the last three weeks where he had to throw the ball, where you knew he had to throw the ball. He's always been in a situation where they had that duality of what they could do, and that's why he's been able to be, to be successful. But is that going to happen now against the Eagles? The Eagles don't have the greatest defense, but they still have Fletcher Cox. They still have Javon Hargrave up front. They still have Malik Jackson. They have guys who can create pressure. Now, on the backside, they've had their problems too, but if they can create that pressure, I think things are going to go well there. So I think this is really the make-or-break week for Taysom Hill. It would have been against Denver, against a real quarterback there, but when he failed, when he had negative 0.7 EPA per dropback versus positive 0.7 running the ball, that was really the test. And the key here is what is Sean Payton going to do? Is he going to continue to drop back Taysom Hill like he's been dropping him back like a real quarterback this entire time? And I think he will. It's been successful. He's going to continue to do it despite the fact that they really need to be running the ball. They need to be using that part of his game exhaust that part of his game now. We have Drew Brees likely coming back next week because Brees has been, despite what narratives you see out there, he's been a lot better than Taysom Hill this year. He's about 0.2 EPA per play versus Taysom Hill is about 0.7, 0.8. It's not really close in that department, but the Saints are winning. The defense is playing out of its mind and Taysom Hill is starting to be seen as maybe a viable thrower of the ball. I think that's a mistake and I think it's something that will be revealed this week. All right. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to this new experiment here when I talk solo for a while. We're going to have a little break here, and then I'll come back with Shio Kapadia from The Athletic. My guest today is Shio Kapadia. He is senior NFL writer with The Athletic. But more importantly, I mean, he does great work across the entire NFL. But more importantly, this is fortuitous timing to have him on this week because he covered the Eagles for a number of number of years. Some of them at the, at the, at the athletics, some of them at ESPN also covered the Seahawks. So I think we're going to hit some, some Eagles talk and some Seahawks talk on, on the pod. And of course the Eagles talk is going to be heavy on the announcement this week from Doug Peterson. Finally, I don't know if it's a capitulation. You might even call it this week. It's finally going over to, to Jalen hurts. So uh, first off, I want, I want to do this in a couple different ways. One, discuss the decision, what's going on, uh, moving to Hertz from Wentz. And then two, like what's next? And I think that's the big thing. What, what's going to happen with Wentz? What's going to happen with Hertz? What's going to happen? And you've written about this uh, with Peterson or, and, and Roseman. And of course, it, it's really going to rely on a lot. Who The person I want to talk about more than maybe some other people want to talk about him is what Jeff Lurie thinks at the top, um, because I'm interested in, in ownership there. So 
first off, that was a big preamble there. So I apologize in advance for that. But first off, thanks for, thank you for joining me. I know you've been writing a lot about the Eagles. So do you have this situation figured out for me? So we, so I can understand what's going on now. Uh, I was hoping the opposite because, you know, I, I <laughs> like the way you look at a lot of these things and, you know, I try to be part of sort of the uh, football nerd uh, conversation, but I feel like I have a surface level understanding of a lot of it. So I think we'll talk through it and hopefully draw some conclusions that can help us both by the end of this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me, let's face it. No matter what, what level you have, we're all just trying to find the right numbers to back up our takes in the first place, whatever, <laughs> right. whatever our takes happen to be, that doesn't change. We just, we, we, we maybe throw out some fancier stuff out there and put some graphs and some visualizations to, to try to, uh, to try to distract people, but that that's at the end here. So, I mean, w- let's rewind all the way back to um, the Hertz pick, because I remember you had a great piece at the time that came out. Um, I also wrote about the, the Hertz pick, and I think it was probably my most popular article in the offseason where I was I was more positive on it. I think you were were not necessarily grading, but trying to figure it, figure it out as what what it meant there. So I think the one thing I want to I want to frame about this pick is now that we know what's happened this season. Um, was this the right move to move over to him? Because this kind of seems like if you were going to make that pick, this would be one of the scenarios where it has the most value to, to actually be, to actually go to him when Carson Wentz is struggling. Right. Yeah. No, I, I remember you did, you wrote a great piece and I feel like a lot of our, the way we viewed it was similar, but maybe our conclusions were a little bit uh, different. And so, you know, I, I thought at the time, that the pick was about a few different things. And I know uh, the big one was optionality, right? Which you've written about at length. And I totally agree with at the quarterback position. Whereas, you know, unless you've got Patrick Mahomes, it probably makes sense to take a bunch of swings and, you know, worst case scenario, you have multiple guys who can play. And we know we've seen it in the NFL that they can be viewed as assets and you can, you know, move one guy or whatever, and it still ends up working out well. And so I think that was part of it. Now, Honestly, I don't know how much the Eagles saw that coming. I think that was part of their uh, process a little bit, but maybe not as much as you and I thought at the time, you know, just kind of doing some reporting since then and, and, and talking to people. I mean, I think a lot of it came down to, well, Carson Wentz has been injured a lot and we need a backup who's not going to cost a lot of money and maybe Jalen Hurts can be that. And then they had these visions of, hey, look at what the Saints are doing with Taysom Hill. Look at some of these quarterback run game schemes we're seeing in the NFL. Maybe Jalen Hurts can do some of that. And then I, I think finally they kind of looked at it like uh, I think they I think it's been you know reported elsewhere. Jeremy Chin was basically the guy uh, you know the, the safety who's playing so well for the Panthers was the other guy they were looking at there. And so I think they thought either we can take Jalen Hurts and a different safety, which ended up being a guy named Kayvon Wallace in a later round, or we can take Jeremy Chin and maybe get another quarterback later. And they thought, well, we know how important quarterbacks are. Why do we want to mess around with that? Let's just take the quarterback we have graded higher. So that's sort of what you and I, I think were thinking at the time about why they wrote it. And then some background on, I think what they were thinking at the time when they made the pick. Now, I think they, the, they in this question is important because um, I, from what, okay. From what's been revealed during the season, we don't know a lot. Nothing's not that much is revealed from Roseman's thinking, at least what you can see. It's tougher. It's tougher to tell um, by, by what we're seeing as far as the actions that happened during the actual season. Now, Doug Peterson's actions to me, because I was someone who thought that they might turn it over to Hertz 
quicker than they had. You know, we had the talk a couple of weeks ago that Hertz was going to be used more extensively. And then he came in for like three snaps or something like that. Like it was nothing basically. So it's looked a little bit like Doug's being pushed in a direction to use him more that he may not have wanted. So when you're saying they, that's, that's what I wonder. I wonder was, is the they Peter, maybe Doug Peterson didn't quite understand, didn't quite think of it as much that way, but is there still a possibility Howie Roseman, who was comparing Jalen Hurts to one of his biggest regrets, which was passing on Russell Wilson in the past. Um, you know, talking about stuff like that doesn't sound strictly like insurance plan, contingency plan to me. Using a, a second round pick doesn't also doesn't sound like contingency plan necessarily to me, although we have seen it with the Patriots and Jimmy Garoppolo, but it's, it's fairly rare. So uh, anyway, I threw a lot of stuff at you there, but who, yeah. who, who, is there a different they in this, in this circumstance of who's looking at it in a different, in a different way? You know, I, I think the pick, every roster move they make has to go on Howie Roseman's ledger or whatever you want to call it. I mean, he's got right. final say on all of that. Doug Peterson has very little say on any of that. I mean, they might have him work out a quarterback or offer input, but really, I mean, he has very little, if any, say on personnel. So you are right that it was Howie Roseman's thinking. Now, I think the part about it about the optionality is really the most interesting aspect of it, right? It's that if you don't have a top five quarterback, take another swing and there are multiple outcomes. You know, if you're the Eagles, it's not necessarily like you're not rooting for Carson Wentz. You're rooting for the Eagles, or even if you're an Eagles fan. So if Carson Wentz came out in 2020 and played great, that's a great outcome. Hurts is just a backup. If what's happening now happens and Carson Wentz doesn't play great, or may, let's say he got injured for like six weeks or whatever, and Jalen Hurts goes in and he does look like a Russell Wilson clone, well, that's also a good outcome, you know, that, right. that because, yeah. because you're still, then you're getting great quarterback play on a rookie contract. Now, the reason I was not uh, on board with the pick, I guess there were a couple of reasons, but the main one was that they've used these second round picks before where I thought the upside was limited. So even now, like, let's say you had a quarterback who was it who you hadn't just signed to a $128 million contract like you had to Carson Wentz. Well, then I would say the Hertz pick makes a lot more sense because you're not committed to anyone in 2021 or 2022 and take those swings. And if he works out, that's great. The reason I didn't like the pick was because you just signed Wentz to this contract. And, you know, I'm sure we'll get into it, whether you can trade him and not, but right. even if they do trade him now, it's at a very, 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 steep cost in terms of the dollars you've invested in him. And so that's why I thought you look at other teams around the league, like take the bills, for example, right? They're playing really well right now. If you look at every move they've made offensively, it's been in the last two years and it's been to help Josh Allen, right? That's mm -hmm. where they've put their draft capital, uh, the Stefan Diggs move, John Brown, Cole Beasley, whatever you want to talk about. And so to me, it was like, if you're investing $128 million in this guy as your franchise quarterback, that it makes more sense to say, let's do everything we can to help him build around him rather than add this sort of um, insurance policy or this other, other swing at quarterback. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the building around him is an interesting question. I think for Wentz and what Roseman has done, I don't think it's that I, I, it's hard to say he hasn't tried to build around him, right. I think. Right. Because yeah. I mean, I know it's, Wentz's time, but you know, Zach Ertz first round pick, they brought in Alshon Jeffrey after, after he was there, they made another first round pick in this last draft, which didn't work out. They brought in Deshaun Jackson, which, which hasn't worked out. You know, they, they got Dallas Goddard. They had the offensive line, which until this year was one of the best out there before it kind of crumbled to dust this year. So it's, I could see how, you know, 
the, the thought could be we're using this pick, but it's not like we haven't built and we're, and we're hoping for better results this year, right? We're hoping for better results. We're hoping everyone's not going to get injured like in, in prior years and, and what had happened. So I can see that. But I guess when it comes to the decision on when to make this pick for Hertz, my thinking is that sometimes the prospect dictates the timing as a, you know, the, the pick dictates the timing as opposed to the situation dictates the timing. If you're going to wait for, um, you know, the contract situation of your starter, who again is not a Patrick Mahomes, right? So if you're going to wait for the, the contract uh, uh, of your starter, having lost enough games to possibly be in position, happening to be the right year that you can actually get someone, uh, all those things to fall into line. It's very difficult to do unless you'd have just a wipeout season where you're drafting at the very beginning of, of the draft. So I could see Roseman saying, you know, obviously the, the, the timing isn't perfect, right? The timing is perfect, but th- getting this level of quarterback who he probably believes is a first round talent. I mean, all these guys believe they're, they're, they're drafting yeah, first right. round talents, right? So he believes it's a first round talent. He says, if I don't do it now, um, I don't know if I can do it next year. I don't know if I can do it any year until, unless we bottom out and I'm probably gone anyway, like I'm fired. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm hitting the streets anyway. So in some ways this was a way to, this, this might've been in his mind, the, the only opportunity he'll have minus a complete collapse to get the next quarterback if, if needed to get that contingency plan. Yeah, no, you're right. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I agree with the big picture thought of when you scout a quarterback and everything from your analytics department to your, your scout, you know, basically everybody is on board and you feel like he checks every box you're looking for that, you know, most of the time just make the pick and like figure it out. That's fine. I think your point is, is, is very accurate about, it's not like they didn't try uh, to make moves to help Carson Wentz. I mean, I don't like playing the what if game with draft picks because usually yeah. it's a one off, right? You say, well, they took JJ Ortega Whiteside. They yeah, taken I forgot JJ about JJ, which is probably know, one yeah, of the, the, right. the biggest when you look at who was who was drafted around him as far right. as the swings and misses. Yeah. And and there's always going to be those misses. We know that. I think we, right. you know, we both agree you draft for volume, you process over results, all those different types of things. But it is pretty, you know, when you kind of stack them all up, whether it's uh, DK, DK, JJ Ortega Whiteside, where they took him, whether it's Deshaun Jackson, rather than a guy like, you know, let's say John Brown, who was available in the same cycle. When you look at, you know, going out on a limb and taking Jalen Rager instead of, Justin Jefferson. I mean, even the Dallas Goddard pick, you can look at that was a second round pick where you had a starting tight end who was under, who was under contract. I mean, in some ways there are parallels to the Hertz thing where you said, we're going to, we like the players we're going to take him, but you know, the best case scenario is that player is going to be on the field for like 50% of the snaps. And so you add those, all those things up. And then they gave out extensions to offensive linemen who were approaching 30 earlier than they needed to. And so you add it all up and you have a roster that's old, a roster that's expensive. And as we see this year, a roster that's bad. And so in a lot of scenarios that hurts pick would be a totally fine pick. But if you kind of look at it in a big picture of how are we constructed right now? Can we afford to make this luxury? Maybe it still will end up being a good pick. I mean, listen, if he comes in and, (laughs) uh, and again, we shouldn't, you know, base it on results. I know that, but if he comes in and plays really well and you have an out with Carson Wentz and all of a sudden you found your next franchise quarterback, well, then it's a big hit. Um, But then the last thing, I guess, is just sort of the chances of hit of reaching that upside, you know, in the second round, I guess, if you look at it, I didn't do like complex math with this, but I just looked at a 10 year span of kind of day two quarterbacks. What are you typically getting? you know, you have about like a 25 to 30% chance 
that this guy is going to end up being either a starter or a competent backup. Uh, I guess there's just a starter. I mean, competent backup, yeah. it gets tough. Cause I, you know, Chad Henney, Mike, Glad- I don't know how to like uh, how yeah, to quantify yeah. those guys, but you, you know what I'm saying? Like it's still the, the chances of hitting that upside are not great. However, if you do hit that upside, then it, it, it it's a home run that, that you connected on. Yeah. I mean, I'll defend the Goddard pick a little bit because sometimes it seems like the ideal Eagles offense would just have five tight ends on the field at all times somehow. Cause Carson Wentz loves throwing to tight <laughs> loves, loves throwing to those guys. I don't it seemed like Goddard was the only guy that he was throwing to against the against the Seahawks in that in that game. But um jokes jokes aside for this, uh yeah, I mean I I, I agree with with everything that that you're saying there. So then I, it comes down to okay, so they've made the move here. They made the move. And we're going to see whether Hertz really is that, that guy that could have been a first round type of guy or not. Do you think he can do enough in these games? Because we're talking about four games, right? That he can do enough that the Eagles could consider him being the one a option next season. And and this presumes, like I said, I want all these pieces to have to go. This kind of presumes that Roseman is still there, right? Because he's a guy who drafted him. So I think it'd be hard if you brought in someone new. I I think they're going to have dreams of either rebuilding Wentz maybe, or or doing something else, but presuming Roseman is still there. Could, could that be the one a option next season? If he plays well enough, the one a option to, like a yeah, I guess there is. The, I guess there's not really much. Well, maybe <laughs> drafting another quarterback in the third round and yeah. then trading Wentz or something or something like that. Okay. Maybe even maybe even there's a possibility that Wentz could stay, right? Sure, and absolutely. It would be a highly paid uh, backup. But if you look at the combined amount of money that they'd be spending on the two of them, I think it would. I think the cap hit would still be under forty million, which surprisingly some teams are over that amount. Right. Um. But there, there, are, there are a lot of cap issues with the Eagles, too. So, that, I mean, that, that's part of it, too, is trying to figure all that stuff out. Um, but uh, I, I guess just generally, could, could, could he be the, the guy next year? Uh, I, I think it would be a mistake to draw conclusions on a four-game four sample at the end of this season. I mean, yeah. uh, I, I just do. It, it is a huge – I mean, think of the, the sort of uh, degree of these decisions they're going to have to make in the off season, right? It's, it could potentially be, do we draft a quarterback with a top five pick? And it, this goes back to kind of what we were just talking about. Now I'll go on the other end and say, <laughs> if there's a guy you love and you have a you know top five, top 10 pick, whatever it is, this off season, I'm saying do that 100%. Don't let whatever it is, whether it's, Hey, Hertz played well the last four games or, Hey, it's uh, we feel like we can fix wins. Like you cannot, pass on a quarterback in my opinion that high in the draft when you're drafting that high if you feel like you're scouting your analytics everything has told you that player has a chance to be really good so uh, I think Hertz can give you information in these last four games you know maybe it is hey he looks uh, competent enough that if we have a quarterback competition next year he can be a part of it maybe he plays really well. And you say, wow, he actually does really have a chance to be a starter. We're not going to assume that he is the starter in 2021, but all the things we wanted to see, we saw, and that's great. It could be that the offense looks exactly the same. And you say, well, if you know, Carson Wentz played poorly, but it wasn't all on Carson Wentz and our surrounding talent or our, our scheme was terrible. And man, the offense looks exactly the same with a different quarterback. And so to me, that's what it's about. The last four games is gather the information, See how Hurts plays. Use it to inform some of your offseason decisions, but do not. Uh, I think it would just be a huge mistake to draw any conclusions 
based on how he plays. I mean, to a degree, they kind of did this last offseason. If you remember this time last year, everyone was like, the Eagles stink. They're not going to make the playoffs. Wentz is terrible. And then it was Wentz and kind of a bunch of backups. And it was probably overstated how well they played, but they did win four in a row. They go to the playoffs. And I could tell you the Eagles made offseason decisions based on that to the degree of, hey, you know, let's get some young young guys to uh, work with Wentz. Let's give Wentz more of a, a leadership role, all these different types of things. And I don't think that was wise to base kind of a lot of those decisions on a four-game sample either. Yeah, I mean, they, they've been – they're one of the teams that's kind of like, a, like an all-in type of team, right, um, for, for this season and, and next season. So maybe that's a, maybe that's a transition here because I think we're, we're both in agreement that this is probably the right move, but it's really what's gonna, what it's going to precipitate down, down the road. So the three futures that I talked about, so the Wentz future, the, the Peterson, and, and Roseman. Now, for, for Wentz um, – you you mentioned it earlier about the contract, and I think I think there's some misinformation out there, at least for some people on the contract. They're looking at the yeah. fact that if you cut him, it's this huge hit, so you really can't do that. Um, if you trade him, it's basically a a net positive by a few hundred thousand. It's it's nothing that that significant for the Eagles going forward, but. Um, you have to do it before you're three days into free agency or else you're giving him a $10,000 roster bonus, which you cannot, I mean, that's 10, $10 million yeah. rose, <laughs> roster bonus. Yeah. That'd be great it's if you had like a $10,000 roster bonus. Like who negotiated this terrible yeah, contract? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a, that's the wrong, <laughs> wrong optics there for, for everyone, including me saying it. Um, so a $10 million roster bonus. And then, then, then you're toast. Then you're like, you're losing money to get rid of them in a year where, depending upon where the salary cap ends up. And this is really a a huge point here. They're going to be anywhere from 50, I think to 80 million over the cap if they don't do anything going forward. So like the the plan one, a going into next year, I think was going to be Wentz plays well and we restructure him because he is one of the big contracts that we can, we can get relief from, but in order to do that, um, you have to do two different things, almost all these negotiations, right? Because generally, you're, you, you, maybe the cash can be worked out by giving a big signing bonus, but by doing that, you're going to extend the guarantees. You're going to raise the, the cap hit in the short term if you want to get out of, that, out of that contract. So you'd be locking yourself in even further. So that, is, that, is there any chance that that is still on the table, do you think, for, for next year? Any chance? I would say, I guess there, I mean, I want to say, I really want to say no, you know, but I, 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 I guess there's a scenario where, I don't know, maybe Hertz plays poorly this week. They go back to Wentz. He plays well. They get, I, I don't know. I still think it's, yeah, no. yeah. I mean, it's exactly what you're saying. You're just digging that hole um, deeper and deeper with your commitment to him. And you really should not do, uh, you know, what would be kind of a short-term fix there and to kind of put yourself in a worse spot down the road. So I'll just say no for our purposes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, even without him, it's possible to get underneath the cap, but we're talking about cutting and restructuring another five, six, seven players. I mean, it's a lot of guys they're going to have to, but, but it is possible. It's theoretically possible to, to do that without, without bearing yourself even further on that. So I, yeah, I think, I think I agree there now trading him. I've, I've actually, okay. I'm of the opinion, like I said, that I don't think, I think it's a tradable contract because it's 
40 million guaranteed presume. I mean, everyone, the guarantee, the 10 million guarantee is going to kick in for 2022 to whoever gets them. So it's 40 million guaranteed over the next two years. It's 47 total cap over the next two years. Then you have a couple of option years for a team where you're going to be paying them another 25, 26 million. Now that sounds like a big number for a quarterback who has, depending upon how you're looking at it, it could be considered the worst quarterback in the NFL this year or, or a bottom three quarterback in the NFL this year. But if a team decides he is our starter, then that's starting quarterback money. Like, I, I don't think a team is really going to quibble about whether you're paying someone uh, $17 million or $24 million to start if, that, if that's your starter because Teddy Bridgewater is making more money on an annual basis over the next two years than that. Alex Smith is making more money. I mean, they, they probably won't. Alex Smith probably won't survive that contract. But still, he signed a, a deal at 33 that was a bigger contract than what Wentz's remaining contract is right now at 28 when he, when he went to Washington. So, it's not you know, out of the realm of possibility that can happen. But I've been starting to think more that you know, t- blowing it up, I mean, you're, you're, it's really a risk to, to get rid of them. There's probably more of a risk to get rid of them than you think on the Eagles side. So maybe there's a lower chance than I think there. What, what do you think is the chance that he sticks around next year? Or, or, or what do you think is the chance I should flip it around? What's the chance that they do look to move him? Because they're going to have to be very aggressive and do that early. Yeah, no, I, I was glad about, you know, I was seeing you write about it and tweet about it. And I think you're right. There is a lot of misinformation there about sort of the the contract and what it would be. It's like you said, I mean, if you are a team that is in need of a quarterback this offseason, uh, the market is going to be really interesting, I think, right? Because free agency, let's assume Dak goes back to uh, the Cowboys. Then you're talking about Cam Newton, Philip River, Rivers, you know, Jameis Winston, Jacoby Brissett. It's not a great group there. And then you look at, you know, Jimmy Garoppolo could be part of that too if the 49ers decide to move on. And then, the, but the trade market could be interesting with a guy like Matthew Stafford uh, out there. And so if you are a team, like look at what the Colts did last year, they gave Phillip Rivers $25 million at what, 38 years old to be their starter for one year. Well, that's comparable to what you would owe Carson Wentz. And so right now you look at it and you have the recency bias and you say, oh my gosh, he's been one of the league's worst quarterbacks. I mean, have these teams watched? Like, I can, can you just see it now? Like a team trades for him and everyone's like, oh, you know, have they watched him this year? This guy sucks kind of thing. And it's like, it's what you, you know, I, I love the projections you do where you look at yeah. here are the, the most likely outcomes. And I think that's important because, 2017 Carson Wentz played really well. You look at some of the metrics, it wasn't that wasn't like a sustainable really way to play when you look at his touchdown percentage, his third down percentage, but he played really well. I think he was first in QBR that year. In 18 and 19, he was not a terrible quarterback. Like, you know, I think QBR had him 11th and 12th, whatever metric it might be a little bit better, a little bit worse. I would say he was mediocre to uh, slightly above average in 2018 and 2019. Now I looked at that as I thought that was probably around what his floor was going to be. You know, that was years three and four. And I thought, you know, he might not ever be put up those numbers from 2017. He might not ever be a top five guy, but I thought his floor is going to be around maybe the 10th to 15th best quarterback. And so if you are a team, that looks at it in kind of the big picture that way and you say he's 28 years old maybe you say we don't think much of what Doug Peterson was doing maybe you don't think much of his supporting cast whatever the case may be you can pretty much talk yourself into all right it's a two-year commitment at what we're going to have to pay anybody else really any other starter if we sign them or trade uh, for a quarterback and then it really comes down to what do you have to give up to get him so um 
to answer your question, I know I just went on like a, whatever, a five minute rant. Apologies. I know you did ask a question yeah. there. Um, yeah. I, I, I think I forgot said, what it was too. So don't yeah, worry, so don't no, the, the likelihood of him being traded. I mean, I wish I could put a percentage on it. I, I don't think it's the most likely scenario. So I think I would yeah. definitely say under 50%. I would yeah. say hot, higher than like 15%. So I guess that yeah. kind of would, uh, would give you a range. I, I think it's possible. I don't think it's the most likely outcome. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, before I was thinking it was higher than that, but then now I'm starting to come down. I guess what I am more certain of than than I was a few days ago was the fact that somebody is going to. I think somebody's going to want. Like somebody would trade for him, and this is because you get these you get these uh these messages out there about the Eagles are going to have to send two first round picks right. with Carson Wentz. It's like it's yeah. like whoa, let's chill out here. People are talking <laughs> about trading for Sam Darnold, okay? Like <laughs> who has literally done nothing, who's nothing but been the worst quarterback every year of his career, pretty much. So yeah, I, I think. That that angle is a little bit overplayed, um, but you're right about the sentiment. Actually, the best thing that I found for sentiment gauge is when the PFF main account tweets out like one of my articles and then I'm tagged in there and then just to see the replies to that. So yeah, when I wrote this article about Carson Wentz and I said he could have something to offer the right team, every single reply was, I mean, people are getting their jokes. And people are like, what, you know, interceptions, you know, sacks, uh, right. the, the, you know, <laughs> losses, uh, this, like, yeah, that's what, that's what everyone was saying. So yeah, the, the, the bar is low on it, but I think that NFL guys, NFL front offices are different than fans in a way because they all had this long, I mean, maybe not different than draft Twitter, but different than most fans. Cause they, you know, they were invested in, yes. in scouting this guy and it hasn't been that long. And he was the MVP. I mean, I, I think I mean, MVP, he would have been MVP probably he would, close if he would have played out the rest of the season at that same sort of level. Very, very close. I mean, at that point in time, like it's hard to remember, but I remember the NFL 100, which is not the greatest measure. Right. But he was number three. In the NFL 100, after that 2017 season, I don't know who was one and two. Presumably, it was like Brady and somebody and somebody else. But um, you know, every executive in the entire NFL would have traded four first round picks, five for like there was it was unlimited. Even after the there, remember this whole Foles versus Wentz discussion that that I don't know why was even being talked about at the at the end. I guess it was the end of 2018 then, right? Um, yes. I think it would have taken three first round picks to get Wentz then, right? Uh, pr- probably or something like that before his contract extension. So to say that someone could get him for absolutely nothing after this one bad season, where in reality he's kind of his his upside is maybe gone from being elite to being above average or something like that, like like pretty good but not but not elite seems seems a little bit strange to me um, that that's happening. Uh, I, I guess that the question would be, can anyone can Roseman or Peterson survive without him? Do you think they can survive? I think Roseman can. I think, I mean, Peterson, I I don't know if uh, Mike Sando for The Athletic just wrote a piece today basically about this whole situation, and he does a great job of talking to league execs. And, you know, sometimes you read it and you're like, wow, these are, you know, kind of the people running teams, but it's awesome because it it says what you just said, you know, like, like how maybe even media, really smart analysts, fans might view a situation can be very different than how the people making these decisions view them. I mean, I remember Sam Bradford, like five years after the fact, when teams are trading for him, they're still referencing his pro day, you know, right. and I'm going. And he never Wait. showed the upside. He never showed the real, real upside. <laughs> I'm going, in the NFL. why yeah. do you, this is meaningless. <laughs> you have five years of NFL yeah. evidence in games. Go off yeah. that, but, but it's true. There will be teams that say, we scouted this guy. Hey, remember that interview we had with him at the combine? And hey, yeah. remember how we, how we, 
throw it in this one game and what our report said and all these different types of things. And like never underestimate sort of the egos of the coaches and GMs involved here, really. I mean, you don't think there's like a, like a, offensive coach version of Greg Williams. Who's like, I'm going to take Carson Wentz and this guy, you know, he'll be better than Mahomes with two months with, yeah. with me. Um, that type of thing. So I'm doing a terrible job with this interview. I already forget what, yeah. uh, what, what was your question again? Well, it was whether or not they could, to they just could survive this week. Well, okay. Yes, okay, okay, so, okay. Cause I think, I think you're right. Okay. Let's just say generally, if I was going to rank order the rank of survival, I would put maybe, <laughs> I don't know. Wentz and Roseman are tough. Like those are kind of like in the same area for me. And then Peterson, I think is like a distant third as far as his probability to survive. Do you think I'm wrong in saying that? Uh, I think that's the right read. Yeah, no, I I think the most likely scenario, which I wrote is that they hold on to Wentz. They convince themselves that a different coach can really help him unlock him, get him to, you know, find answers and that they move on from Doug Peterson. You know, I, I'm not going to say like, I'm, I'm sure that's going to happen, but if you're asking yeah. me like for my most likely scenario, that would be it. Now, Howie Roseman does, I, I think deserve uh, a large, you know, amount of criticism for kind of the state of the roster when the cap issues we talked about the age of the roster, uh, the quality of the roster, um, some of the decisions he's made, the drafting, all these different types of things, even if we just look at process with drafting, not just the players. However, he's been Jeffrey Lurie's like right-hand man and has been in the organization for like 21 years. And so when you're an owner and you have faced these huge decisions, a lot of times, you know, this is why they hire these like, you know, search firms or whatever. Like they don't have the confidence to say, I can go out with the other people I trust and find a new coach and a GM. And so they're kind of less likely to do that. And they might be more likely a guy like Jeffrey Lurie to say, well, let's switch the coach, but Howie Roseman will help me find a new coach. We'll give it a shot with uh, Wentz and the new coach. And we will go from there. So I do think that that the most likely scenario is that they move on from Peterson, but keep Wentz and Roseman. Now, you know, the, the, okay. So the lead up to hiring Peterson is pretty, is pretty, you know, well-known at this point that he wasn't the first choice and that uh, they moved down to him. So I I think, okay, I, I want your input on this too, but I think the dynamic in the NFL, maybe I'm wrong to think that it's changed. Maybe I'm just not thinking back far enough to when there were these, extremely, you know, emperor coaches like a Bill Parcells or someone like that in the past. But it seems to me recently the model, which I don't I don't know if it recently started with Kyle Shanahan, but I think Kyle Shanahan is is a good point to, to point out was where basically they're bringing they're, they're hiring Shanahan and then Lynch is brought in because Kyle Shanahan allows it essentially, you know, yeah. like he's, he deems Lynch. Okay. To, to bring in at the same time. And whatever you want to say about the power dynamic there, I don't believe for a second that Kyle Shanahan doesn't have the, the, the real power dynamic there. And if you look at what happened this off season for coaches in order to get someone like um, you know, the, the, they brought in, Ron Rivera, they're bringing him in and he's just going to, he's, he's going to do everything he wants with, with the organization there. And he's going to, he's going to start from top to bottom, as opposed to maybe in, in, for the giants, they bring in Joe judge and they say, you know what, we, we can slide Joe judge in here. He'll be underneath Gettleman, but Joe judge wasn't this guy that everyone wanted necessarily. Um, I think even for Matt rule coming into Carolina, it's interesting because I think, um, He's going to have to, we'll see what happens with the front office there. Um, actually, can you wait one second? Sorry, I'm running out of batteries. I didn't realize. I was no, no, yeah, yeah, no problem.
I don't know what's going on here. It's not, it's not, I have it plugged in, but then it's not working. Uh oh, this is not good. Uh, no problem. Sorry. Take your time. I really have no clue what's going on here. I plugged it in, but then it's not going. Oh, here we go. All right. We're good. Sorry Got about it? that. All right. No problem. Had to okay. go, had, had to go, had to go mid rant there. Okay. I'll just start with Matt rule again. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So in Carolina, they brought in Matt rule. I mean, we'll see what happens in there in the front office, but I think he's going to have a lot of control going forward on what they're going to do there. I'm probably missing some other teams and where, there has been a similar situation to this, but the question would be if you have Roseman around, does that complicate the head coaching search of someone who may want to come in and have his guy in the front office? I think it has to. Yeah. Because it's not only have his guy, but you know, I, I don't think you're going to, the coach is not going to have a lot of say in the personnel. I mean, if the GM has been there for that long and the GM has the owner's ear and the GM has outla- outlasted Andy Reed, Joe Banner, Chip Kelly, Doug Peterson. I mean, it's, it's a pretty long list, you know, and, you know, to his credit, they won a Super Bowl. They've won a lot of games for sure. Even if I think this sort of recent track record is not good, but like, that's the situation, you know, you're going to now there's always the, you know, saying that there's only 32 jobs. Right. And so, you know, right. guys work a lot of years just for the opportunity. And it is still, I think, good ownership and that kind of thing. But really you would be walking into a situation where there's not a lot of room to upgrade the roster in the short term. The GM is going to be making the personnel moves and that, you know, that might not be as attractive as let's say if you're, you know, if you were like a Matt rule and you kind of want to go in and say, I want a, what, what did he get a six year contract? Yeah, it was, was it? It was, it yeah, was, yeah. was kind of crazy. Right. Yeah, I think, I mean, um, who was it? David Tepper locked him in a room and wouldn't let him leave until, <laughs> is that what until it was? Leave. That's kind of well, creepy. No, no. It was like an offer you can't refuse. It was okay, like, he gotcha. basically got, he godfathered him. He godfathered him on there. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. a, it wasn't a, uh, uh, was, abduction. <laughs> it wasn't an abduction. Wasn't okay. It wasn't nefarious, but he, he didn't let him leave basically without yeah. ac- accepting the offer. And it helps to be a billionaire to do that. Right. And yeah. not have to worry about the, the salary cap. So he was, he was able to get that done, but you're right. That was an enormous contract. Right. So aside, coach. Yeah. the Eagles can offer match the financial aspect, I guess, of any other yeah. team, but in terms of all the other stuff that might matter to a coach looking to make a big move, they probably might not be able to match those things compared to, you know, even like a, a, a weird team, like the Jaguars, right. You might think, all right, who would, you know, why would you want to coach the Jaguars instead of the Eagles? If you're, I don't know, looking at market or history or whatever, but like, like the Jaguars could be a very uh, attractive opening given their draft capital, given that the expect, you know, you're not locked into this roster. The expectation isn't that you're supposed to win the, you know, win the Super Bowl within uh, two years or whatever. And so, there will be other openings like that, that, that coaches could find more attractive for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So then I guess let's go back to, to, to Jeff Lurie for a second. Do you, do you have any indication? It's not like, I mean, you know, it's not like you guys were uh, uh, country club buddies or something like that. So you've really had a chance to, to talk to him that much, but you, you know him better than, than most people. And obviously owners aren't really out in front that much, but I remember one of the articles I liked then some quotes that you got from him was at the owner's meeting a couple of years ago. And I liked how he talked about things and he seemed like he'd at least bought in or at least was parroting what he had heard about some of this, you know, process oriented 
things. Do you think his temperament in that regard makes it more likely that he can not react in a way like we've seen in Cleveland or somewhere else where you're just constantly churning people when, when things start to get rough? Yeah. You know, I think philosophically he is like forward thinking and he's into a lot of the, you know, football nerd stuff that, you know, yeah. you and I, and a lot, probably a lot of people that are listening are into, but you know, it is different when you're sort of in the seat making the decisions and you're, I think he's going to be 70 years old and uh, you know, you've been doing it for a while. Like, I, I don't think he's good. If the question is, is he going to be really patient? I think the answer is no. I think his belief is that in the NFL, turnarounds can and should happen relatively quickly. I think he's willing to take big swings. I don't think he's like risk averse to um, personnel moves. I mean, even how they got Carson Wentz in the first place, right? You know, they had to kind of maneuver and trade up and do all these different types of things. I think he's, he's into those types of moves, but I think if someone came in and said, Hey, you know, it's going to be three years until we're uh, a really competitive team. I think he would say, I don't think so. That's not uh, how we operate, you know, to a degree, I kind of uh, agree with him in, in that respect in football. You know, I think the turnarounds often happen quicker than, than you might think. So I think the one big thing with him is that he's always, you know, believed that uh, sustained success starts with offensive efficiency and specifically passing efficiency. I mean, I think that has been his belief for, um, you know, probably decades now, probably before he even hired Andy Reid. And so he believes everything is quarterback related. You do what you need to do to get the quarterback you support the quarterback, you get the coach. Like he wants the, you know, he wants the coach who the, who like film Twitter is drooling over every week. Like, I'm like, you know, look at what they did with this tight end in motion on this right. run play wrinkle. Oh my God. Like that, right. that's the coach he wants. And so, you know, Andy Reid, he got that coach. I mean, they didn't win a Super Bowl, but right. That that's what Andy yeah. Reid is. Chip Kelly. He thought he was getting that coach. You know, they had a couple of good years. It didn't turn out to be that. Um, Doug Peterson, I feel like, like you said, it wasn't his first choice, but he felt like he was at least getting part of a, what could be a quarterback whisper, you know, maybe in like, if you team him up with some other coaches, this could be a really good offensive staff type deal. And so I think if they do make a move, whatever move they make, it will be based around how do we get this offense on track? Because if you look at the offense, like just by whatever, uh, EPA or DVOA, like, I think it's like the franchise's third worst offense since he's been the owner of the team. And so that to me is why I, I feel like it's highly unlikely that he's just going to run it back and say, this was a weird year, COVID injuries, whatever, because I think it's not just what their record is. It's how they're losing. If they were losing games 36 to 34, Wentz was playing well, the offense was playing well, he would have a much easier time running it back, but that's not the case. The offense is an embarrassment. Yeah. Now, okay. Is there, is there a coach? or a GM or a new GM or anyone who can promise them a quick turnaround in light of the fact that you have a 28, 29 year old quarterback in the middle of his second contract. Um, 2021 is looking pretty rough. Like we mentioned that the salary cap stuff. So it's going to be the same. It's going to be, you know, the same team plus some draft picks uh, plus some tinkering in the, in on the low side of free agency uh, minus some guys who are going to let, let go. Like Alshon Jeffrey's gone. Not that they've done much. Deshaun uh, Jackson's gone. There's going to be some other guys who are going to be gone on the other side of the ball. So uh, you're going to need at least unexpected um, 
uh, growth from a lot of different players who are currently on the roster in order to be competitive next year, presuming that the NFC East is not, will not be won by a seven win team again next year. So is there anyone who can promise them a quick turnaround or is this a 2022 at best sort of situation? I mean, I guess it wouldn't be crazy for them to be like, it wouldn't be crazy for them to win the NFC East in 2021, right? Let's say you, let's say you hire a coach and he's able to get Wentz playing to just the 2018 and 2019 levels. Like then I think you're probably competing uh, for the division, but this is where the Wentz trade thing becomes so interesting because if you look at the window, I mean, so if you keep him for 2021, the way the contract is structured, you're guaranteeing $15 million for 2022. And so it's Mm -hmm. not just like a pay as you go, Hey, let's see how 2021 goes. You're committing money the following year. Now, if you trade him, you are not committing that money. And then, so then it's like, all right, we're going to have a rough 2021, whether it's Jalen Hurts, whether it's a rookie, but 2022, we're not paying Carson Wentz anymore. He's kind of off the books and we can really start making some moves. So I don't know that anyone can, can guarantee it. I mean, it's going to be an interesting timeline, right? Because they're going to have to, I guess, decide on the coach and the GM first in January, you know, I'm sure they've already had these discussions and then you have a coaching search and then all of a sudden you really have to look to your scouting. I mean, if in mid, if in early February, your uh, personnel department is saying, Hey, uh, Zach Wilson, let's say, Mm -hmm. uh, we love, like, you got to see this. You got to come meet with this guy. He's incredible. Watch this film. This is the guy. Well, then you're moving in a different direction. So I guess for like the future to alleviate risk in 2022 and beyond the move is probably to trade Carson Wentz this off season. Now, if you're, but that depends on kind of how you feel about him and how confident you are that whoever's coaching him can fix him. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the draft thing is interesting because um, it's always one of these situations where, you know, I, I, I consume a lot of uh, media and podcasts and I probably heard like, anywhere from 17 to 18 different teams where they're like, you know what, maybe we can draft Zach. Well, it's like, well, maybe not like not everyone. There are, there aren't like uh, clones of these guys to go around. So I do think like, I don't know how much teams do that to themselves, but I think fan bases convince themselves of this draft out a little bit more than, than it's really there. Right. It's, 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 one one team's going to get them. I, I agree, but you know the Eagles and everyone else are going to be in a decent position. But um, you're going to have to sell out to to get someone like that into this sort of roster. So it will be will be interesting. But okay, let, let's move on from from Eagles talk. That was very comprehensive. I want also, like I mentioned, hit Seahawks talk. Um, I, I have to say that I, I don't I don't do takes that often. But the one take that I got some grief from at the beginning of the season was saying that people who were putting Russell Wilson in the same bucket as Patrick Mahomes, he was kind of overrated is what I was saying at, at that point in time. It didn't help that Bill Belichick shortly thereafter said he was so underrated. And then, you know, he owned me, of course, <laughs> it, like they always, they always own the, the nerds. And then it did also didn't help that the first eight weeks of the season, he was playing, he was insane. He was playing so well that in MVP markets, I think he was like a 50, 60% implied probability to win. Now he's, he's fallen off the charts these last few weeks. So you had your ear to the, to the Seattle streets, to the peers out there um, in, in Seattle. And what the uh, big picture, do you have any opinion on, well, let's start with the let Russ cook thing. Cause that, that's the big thing. So we have the, er, the, the, the nerds were winning. Now the, the, the football guys are back saying, no, we actually won. Um, do you have any opinion on 
whether he should, the cookiness should be high or low for Russell. You know, I, I think it should be high. Yeah. I'm with, I'm, I'm definitely <laughs> okay, with, with the, with uh, uh, I'm with the, the nerds on that, that, you know, put him in advantageous situations, pass on early downs, all those different types of things. I mean, I, I think the big difference, um, you know, with him and Mahomes is the negative plays. I mean, I mean, really, if you look at just kind of the fumbles since Wilson has gotten into the league and then the sacks, which obviously have not been all on him, but you know, that he certainly takes more negative plays, which, which puts you in tough situations, specifically with a defensive minded conservative head coach is going to look at that and weigh that even greater than maybe you or I would. So, um, but yeah, no, I'm on board with, I think their formula for this year is to, do everything you can to make that a prolific offense. Try to get the defense to mediocre and uh, and see what happens. Now, I, it's weird because we're in December and I really don't know what identity this team is going to take down the stretch and in the playoffs. Like I can totally see a playoff loss where Seahawks Twitter is going insane at some of their in-game decisions and their approach. But at the same time, I didn't think that through the first 10 weeks or whatever, they were going to be the most pass heavy team in the NFL. So it's a, it's a really tough one to sort of measure or project over the last month of the season. Now, well, one of the things that I have problems with is I'm not a film guy, right? So I, I consume, I consume though, a lot of what, what the film takes. So the, the, the film take, I would say, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to, I'll mess this up undoubtedly, but I think the film take here is that teams, um, maybe starting with, I don't know if it's starting with the Rams or starting with one of these teams where they're essentially saying on early downs, we're going to continue to play two high safeties. We're going to say, we're not going to let you run DK down the field and just throw one of those perfect moon balls. Cause no one throws the ball better than, than Russell Wilson. So we're not going to like give you a throw. We're not going to say, you're not going to be able to line up and say, okay, the safety's here. This guy is my throw. We're going to make you like, we're going to make you diagnose things from the pocket and we're not going to give you anything, anything easy like that. And that that has been successful. And part of that would be the feeling that if they're not, they're not as threatened by runs on early downs, they're going to allow Seattle to run a little bit more on early downs because they're going to keep that, that safety back. And we've seen in the results that, in fact, the Seahawks have been very successful running the ball in the last few weeks as they've been doing that and not so much in passing the ball. I mean, Russ is down to in the teens somewhere in EPA per play this season, which is shocking when you consider that he was being you know one of the top quarterbacks in the league. So, but there's another side of me, the number side of me that says, we're just building this narrative around what's happening. This guy's been in the league for what, eight, nine years at this point. Like you don't just figure him out midway through right. eight, eight and a half years in the league. So what, what do you think? Did you think there's a, uh, uh, another adjustment that the Seahawks have to make here and that there is an argument on that side? Or do you think maybe this is just some noise that we're seeing over the last few games? Well, I, I think that it makes me want to like, you know, pull up a bunch of numbers right now and look it all up, but I would have to make you take like a you know 25 uh, minute break. But I think those are all interesting points that now I probably will try to look up after this podcast. I mean, yeah, that's kind of the age old thing in football, right? Is that if they're playing two deep safeties, you should be able to run the football efficiently. And there's nothing wrong with running the football efficiently. I think, you know, where Seahawks fans probably got most frustrated was that they were always, you know, they were running at such a high rate on first and second down when they had a great quarterback and there they were probably facing a lot of single high looks. So uh, I think if you're Pete Carroll and you have this, you know, decades of sort of football experience, I would think that he would look at that and say that the answer, if they're playing too high, 
is to run the ball when they play too high, run the ball well, and then we will eventually get advantageous uh, rushing situations. Now, it's the other aspect of like football strategy that always interests me is that, you know, sort of the take what the defense gives you type idea. And that's what that would be. And sometimes I think like there's a reason like the defense is giving you that, you know, like, so like, is it always the best move to just say, all right, they're playing two deep safeties. We're going to run the football or should we be, uh, you know, still be trying to figure out ways to pass it more. So knowing how they think, I think that will make them more run heavy, but at the same time, if they're doing that over the next four weeks and they're gashing teams in the ground game on early downs or against two deep looks, well, all of a sudden defenses are then going to come back and say, all right, well, that's not the strategy to stop him. And I agree with what you said. I mean, when a guy's been in the league for this long, like you, you typically don't figure out a way to stop him in year eight or year nine based on, you know, whatever we're talking about, a four game sample, a six game sample. Like there's a lot, even just watching their game against the giants, like they were kind of just sloppy in that game, right? They had like drops and they had unforced fumbles and these other things that are going to crush you on the EPA and other statistical, but, but like, because a guy, a guy fumbles in a handoff exchange, that shouldn't change the way you play. And so you have to kind of look at some of those factors and say, all right, you know, this isn't going to happen every game. We don't need to make huge adjustments to this. Now, when you were covering the Seahawks, well, what years were the, was that? Uh, 15 and 16. So 15 and 16. So those are some interesting years because, you know, Russ came in 2012, right? Uh, pretty immediate success. Now, I was looking back at his numbers from a grading perspective and from an efficiency perspective. Basically through, I think it was 2016. I think it was 2017 was a down year or was it 2018 it was a down year? Well, one of those was a down year, but he was he was top five or top 10 in EPA per play. His grading though was was marginally lower. These last couple of years, he hasn't been great in EPA per play. Really hasn't changed that much, honestly. He was in the top 10 last year. Like I said, this year he's fallen even further, but his grading has been excellent the last couple of years. And I think there is this thought around the league and for other people that he's changed quite a bit. If you look at Mike Sando, who does the great QB tiers, he was 50 out of 50 tier one quarterback last year. He and Mahomes, are the only two guys to do that. The year before, I think it was almost evenly split between tier one and tier two. So what, uh, what I'm seeing with him is I'm not seeing the results changing that much as far as a pure numbers basis. You were back when the perception of uh, with him was, was, was very different. I think at least for, for, for the average fan, that was Marshawn Lynch play defense, you know, do, do your thing, but don't do too much of your thing. Um, do you think he's, do you think he's changed that much or do you, you know, or what, what, what was the perception? Was that the perception? Am I right about that? Or is that a little bit too much of what, you know, I was listening to too much talk radio or something like that. Yeah, no, I, I think in 2015, I was sort of begging the drum of this guy is underrated and really, really, yeah. really good. But he, you know, but like the perception that he's winning with defense and, and the run game is crazy. I mean, if you look at all their offensive DVOA numbers, is that I always went from like, it was accuracy, uh, you know, like durability and decision-making, which probably looking back, I should have factored in the fumbles more, but if you, you know, he never threw a lot of interceptions um, yes. and his accuracy was always fantastic and that he's never missed a game in his career. So I was like, all right, if you start out with like that foundation, a guy's going to be pretty good and you can really build on it. But it was funny. The second half of that 2015 season, I think there, I can't remember if their defense wasn't as good, they had some injuries like Tom, like Marshawn Lynch wasn't on the field. I think it was Thomas Rawls was their ball carrier. But like, if you go back and look at his numbers, like the last maybe 10 games of 2015, 
it's insane. I mean, I think it might've been like 25 touchdowns, one interception. I mean, yards per attempt, whatever, you know, I'm sure even if you look at EPA and those advanced numbers, it would be crazy. And I thought at that time he was just carving teams up from the pocket. Like it wasn't, you know, Hey, Russell Wilson's running around out of structure and buying time. Obviously that's a part of it, but for the most part, he was just operating from the pocket and just like totally crushing teams. Doug Baldwin had like a great stretch. So I, I always thought in my head, all right, the coaches are going to see this. This is going to be the stretch that makes them say, we're going to change how we play because look at what we have at quarterback. And that didn't really happen. I mean, it did take longer. Really, you could say, I mean, it took until the start of this year until they really decided, let's see what happens if we just hand him the football, pass a lot and try to score a lot of points. And then, you know, they are very, um, you know, I would say Pete Carroll is he, I don't know if he ever preaches process or results, but I do think he's very, very results oriented. And so when you have like two games where you have six turnovers, I mean, that's just not going to sit well with him. He's not going to be able to look at a big picture way of that and say, all right, we can still play the way we're playing. If he goes for it on, you know, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, right? They went for it on fourth down twice in the first half. He didn't get it. And after the game, he's like, that was the worst first half I've ever coached. No, Pete, it was okay. Those are good decisions. <laughs> Make them again. But that's kind of just how he's wired. So, um, no, yeah, no, I think the perception of him, it's it's probably unfairly changed, like you said. I don't think there's been like this massive change between who he is now and who he was four or five years ago. Okay, well, do you think is this is this team still is this team still a contender? Um, and I think part of that is saying they're in the NFC, which I think helps um, versus not having to face the the Chiefs and the Steelers and uh, even the the Ravens. I think have some side the Bills who have now emerged as one of those teams. Um, but like you mentioned in the playoffs, I do see the very strong possibility if you're going to say that they're, especially if they don't win the division, that they're going to win three straight road games to get to the Super Bowl. I just don't see, I, I, don't, I, I don't see how that's necessarily happening. What, what do you think about their chance for really being a contender? Because they were being placed up there near the top, I think largely on the fact that they were seen as having the best quarterback uh, in the conference. Yeah, I wouldn't have them as the favorites, but I don't think it's, I don't think it would be crazy for them to go on a run because I think the quarterback can get hot. I think, uh, you know, offense, offensive efficiency, uh, overall, I believe they're still like a top five team. And so to me, like when I'm just looking at who can contend, if you're top five offensive efficiency, I basically am like, all right, they've got that ceiling, you know, <laughs> right. if, if, if they, regardless of everything else, also the defense, uh, you know, I know that there's a lot of takes about Jamal Adams out there and their defense, but I do think their defense is going to be a lot better, like from this point forward, or even a couple of weeks ago forward than it was earlier in the season. Like, I think they can be a mediocre defense. And so we've seen it over and over again, that top five offense, mediocre defense that could win in the playoffs, especially in the NFC where there's no dominant team. So they are losing some ground. Now that NFC West is pretty interesting because like, I don't know between the Seahawks and the Rams, do you necessarily want to win the NFC West, right? Because you win it and you could be hosting Tampa, you lose it and you could be going on the road against the Giants or Washington. So that was just when I was writing my like power rankings thing today and I was doing the best case scenario for every team. And I'm like, well, you know, it's, it's, I don't think it's that much of a disadvantage. Probably it might be an, it very well might be an advantage to not win the NFC West and uh and get that wild card seed so i don't think that would necessarily be like the end of the world for them yeah no i agree yeah i've seen the it's better not to win the division where i mean it could be better right i guess that's the problem like it could be right. better or 
or it could be a lot worse to, <laughs> yeah. to, to, not, to not have that home game and have to and have to face somewhere else. I mean, you only know the only certainty is you win the division, you get you get the home game. You know, you know, you get the home game. Right. The rest of the stuff will will all fall into play. But I mean, I do think that division. I think the Cardinals are kind of showing they're a year away. Um, they weren't ready uh, this year, and without Kyler running all over the place, they don't. Their offense really isn't that good. Um, the Rams, I, I think, are another another interesting one going forward. Um, but the Seahawks get the Jets, right? So they it's a get right. It's a get yes. right game. <laughs> I think people thought the Giants were a get right game, but that was a little bit of a mistaken identity sort of situation because yeah. there's probably some stigma from the fact that the Giants were so bad uh, defensively last year. So it's not quite there. So I do think there's a there's a chance for the Seahawks going forward. And, you know, I want to get to that point where Russ is really underrated again. I'm not quite, I'm not sure it's quite there yet. I'm going to wait another, another week or two. And I'd be happy to be back in Russ's underrated land, fighting against the football guys, uh, doing, find the good fight on, on that side with you and, and many others. Well, I, I, th- I think we've gone about an hour here. I want to thank you so much for the time and i will say that you and the rest of the crew out there at the athletic are doing excellent work i mean especially when it comes to the eagles who i love to to see and i know that you write about them decent amount i mean just this last week what you've put out what uh mike sando has been putting out talking to different executives who you may have mentioned you know bull wolf and, and what's going on there i think it's just excellent work out there so i appreciate it. everyone should be subscribing to the athletic and everyone should be following you on twitter at shio kapadia um, anything else you want to plug before, before I let you go here? No. Yeah. We've just got the birds with friends podcast with me, uh, Bo Wolf and, uh, Zach Berman, which if you're an Eagles fan, you can listen to it, but then yeah, everything else is just, uh, on the athletic. If you don't subscribe, there's always trials and sales and deals. And so, uh, you could check it out for a week and, uh, and see what you like there. But, uh, it was always fun. It's always fun uh, talking to you and thanks for having me, Kevin. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us. And, uh, thanks for everyone listening. 